Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. A diagnosis of cancer can be frightening. It often makes us reorder our priorities and affects our daily life. Tools for fighting cancer. Tonight, on call with Prairie Doc. Good evening and welcome to On Call with the Prairie Doc. Our battle with many forms of cancer has been going on for a long time. There have been some wonderful gains, but we still have a ways to go. First, a look at this week's Prairie Doc quiz question. It is a true or false question tonight. A bone marrow transplant can resolve most cancers, true or false. Viewers who call in the correct answer will be entered into a drawing to win a copy of the book, The Picture of Health. Each of Dr. Holmes' essays, originally written for On Call with the Prairie Doc, comes with a wonderful accompanying photograph by Dr. Judith Peterson. We will announce the answer and the winner at the end of the show. Remember, you only have 10 minutes to get your answer in. We answer your questions about cancer, its treatments, as they are called in or sent to us via Facebook or email. Call in questions to 1-888-376-6225 or send us an email to the address on the screen. Joining us tonight in studio are, is Dr. Benjamin Solomon with Avera Medical Group Oncology and Hematology in Sioux Falls. And remotely via Zoom is Dr. Michael Peterson, a radiation oncologist with the Avera Cancer Institute in Yankton, South Dakota. Welcome both of you. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. I'm glad to have both of you here. So, could you tell us a little bit uh, about yourselves and uh, like how long you've been with Avera, why you chose uh, oncology? I'll start with you, Dr. Solomon. Yeah, so um, thanks, and thanks for having us on. It's always fun to connect with you, and it's fun to be on the show. Um, I'm actually from Sioux Falls um, and uh, born and raised there. I often tell people I kind of made a triangle around Sioux Falls, uh, came up here to South Dakota State for undergraduate um, um, degree, and then down to University of Nebraska for uh, medical school. And then I was at Mayo Clinic uh, for six years for my residency and fellowship, uh, internal medicine and medical oncology and hematology. And then I've been back in practice at Sioux Falls for, uh, at Avera for about seven years um, and uh, have an outreach clinic up here to Brookings. So I'm up here quite a bit as well. Yes, and I'm always glad when you're up and I can grab you in the hall and ask you a quick question. <laughs> thanks. So thanks so much. And Dr. Peterson, we'd love to know a little bit about uh, how long you've been at Yankton. I know I, I worked with you a little bit when I was down in Tyndall. So uh, how long have you been there? And uh, kind of tell me about your background in history. Sure. Um, I uh, <clears throat> went to high school in Illinois and then went to the East Coast for um, college and medical school and then did some internal medicine training in Chicago and then back to the East Coast to Philadelphia for my radiation oncology residency. Um, practiced for a while in the Philadelphia area, but really liked the Midwest, knew I wanted to get back here. So in early 2001, moved out to South Dakota and have been working 
in Avera facilities ever since. Hard to believe that it's almost 20 years um, that I've been here, uh, but we've raised our kids here and it, it's been great and uh, we really wouldn't live anywhere else. So you know, I have really enjoyed practicing in South Dakota. Oh, wonderful. I'm, I'm glad to have both of you as colleagues. You've been wonderful resources for me. So um, question, you know, you're a hematologist oncologist. A lot of people don't know, what's the hematology part mean? Yeah, I, um, I, I have two uh, board certifications after my residency and most medical oncology training programs involve hematology training. And it's kind of an interesting, interesting sort of historical background in that really the first cancers that really had any treatment available for the most part were blood cancers, leukemias and lymphomas. Some of the first chemotherapies were tried in those diseases, especially in pediatric cases. Um, and so the really hematologists or blood doctors were really, really the first cancer doctors. And it wasn't until much, much later that there were other treatments available for things like breast cancer and colon cancer and lung cancer, et cetera, et cetera, aside from surgery and radiation. And so, so it, it became, it was much later that uh, medical oncology became a field. And so those, tra those training tracks kind of became permanently melded together. So I see people for both blood disorders, which would probably be a little off topic for tonight, but I, I, I uh, have a, a, a medical oncology practice where I see a broad array of different um, uh, cancers. And Dr. Peterson, your training is with uh, radiation oncology. Is that a little bit um, different uh, training track than the hematology oncology? Is that um, starts through internal medicine and then specializes? Tell us a little bit how that path works. Yeah, um, I kind of um, took the uh, long way around to get to be a radiation oncologist. Most radiation oncologists just do an internship and then do a four-year residency in radiation oncology, but I actually did a full internal medicine residency and then did my radiation oncology residency. And radiation oncology, um, you know, depends a lot on imaging. So there's, you know, there's a lot of training on you know, interpreting images as well as training in radiobiology and understanding the different forms of ionizing radiation and how best to utilize them. And also um, understanding how radiation can fit in with other uh, disciplines such as you know, medical oncology and surgery to help give cancer patients the best possible outcome. All right, and with, with all these different uh, types of treatments, how do you guys end up deciding who gets radiation, who gets chemotherapy, who gets surgery, who gets all three, who gets none? Uh, you know, what, how do you know who gets what? Because it seems very confusing to the lay public of why someone got surgery and someone else got chemo and someone else got radiation or? Well, I think, you know, if I, if you, Mike, you don't mind if I, Take this, and then no. maybe kind of go back and forth. But I, you know, I, sure. I think that the main thing with um, with uh, cancer care is that it's individualized, um, and that individual approach may depend on the particular disease you're seeing, uh, the particular type of cancer, the patient, and factors about that patient, um, and um, expertise of the of the of the team that's taking care of the patient. Um, we're fortunate in this area to have a very strong 
access to very strong subspecialty care. And so uh, there's, there's very little in terms of opportunities that we uh, don't have to offer our patients. And so what really becomes important is multidisciplinary discussion. Um, and I think any patient uh, or, or loved one of a patient um, wants to, should, should want to ensure that their loved one is or themselves that are getting the best care. And the best way to do that is with multidisciplinary approaches where we actually discuss cases. Um, and that's a, just a routine part of our, 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 our care. Dr. Peterson, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but that's kind of my, my thought there. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. I mean, there's a lot of discussion of what cancer research has shown in various situations to be the best uh, cancer treatment for different categories of patient and you know the patient and their underlying diseases other than cancer can be very important in deciding what the best cancer treatment is for a given person so um, you, you definitely need to individualize treatment recommendations to make sure that you're giving someone the best care I mean Almost every day, I have discussions with medical oncologists and surgeons about, um, you know, is this patient right for surgery, or should they just get treated with chemotherapy and radiation, or, or should they have initial surgery uh, for like head and neck cancer, and then be treated with radiation and possibly chemotherapy? So um, it's. Um, a very important thing that a cancer patient be treated at a facility where there's a really great dialogue between all the different uh, cancer specialists. And, and we certainly have that here at Avera. Excellent dialogue. Yeah. So when you talk about all these people getting at the table, who's sitting at that table when you're discussing patients? So I, you know, radiation oncology and medical oncology, that's sort of maybe, maybe obvious, but, and uh, Dr. Peterson mentioned surgeons, uh, pathologists, radiologists, uh, sometimes our interventional radiologists as well, um, um, and uh, uh, also sort of subspecialists in other areas of internal medicine. If it's a lung cancer conference, we have our pulmonologists, our lung doctors. If it's a GI cancer conference, we have our gastroenterologists there. So it kind of depends. Um, uh, um, we sometimes jokingly talk about how many meetings we go to because we have actually separate meetings for many for most of these different tumor areas. We have a, you know a breast uh, multidisciplinary tumor board, uh, a GI, uh, a, a GU, um, etc. So um, multiple different um, uh, um, uh, areas that are covered, and uh, that's really important. Excellent. So you all kind of sit around a table, say, this is the patient, this is their history. How can we best help this patient together? Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get to some of our viewer questions, because they are always very interesting here. A caller asks, are cancers on the rise? Dr. Peterson, you want to take that one first? So, um, you know, with aging of the population and with a lot of obesity, you know, there's going to be a lot of cancer, but, but the good news is that for many of the common cancers, the death rates have actually been decreasing in recent years. Um, you know, lung cancer death rates, prostate cancer, um, breast cancer, colorectal, you know, these common cancers 
uh, have seen uh, major successes um, and um, fortunately death rates have declined, but um, cardiologists are, are so good, they're keeping people alive uh, for a very long time. And uh, you know, as people age, uh, and especially um, as people age and are overweight um, and um, have other health problems um, or smoke, you know, they're going to be quite susceptible um, to cancer. So it, you know, it keeps cancer treating specialists, you know, like Dr. Solomon and I, very busy. Um, but it is nice to be able to tell patients that there have been so many successes in treating even quite advanced cancers, um, you know, that we can offer uh, much more in, in the way of a more positive prognosis now than we could uh, even early on in my career. All right, thank you can, so can much. Can I add one thing real quick? Real quick. Uh, d d d this is where I talk about smoking cessation because uh -huh. lung cancer rates are actually have been going down a little bit and, and that's in part because of decreased smoking rates since the 80s. Wonderful. Yep. So, so we're living longer which gives cancer more of a chance to creep up because we're not dying of things earlier like heart disease or Excellent. So, whether you have symptoms, have been diagnosed with cancer, or are a cancer survivor, there are resources available to you for support. Prairie Doc reporter Carter Schmidt tells you about a 24-7 service offered by Avera for anyone in the region. Our team uh, consists of registered nurses and then master's prepared social workers, as well as an administrative assistant. So our clinical staff really is available to educate on symptom management, answer questions if someone was just newly diagnosed uh, related to their diagnosis. They can also help if someone's experiencing anxiety or depression or just that fear of recurrence in our um, individuals that are survivors. So really connecting them to resources, providing support over the phone um, in the moment. So a majority of our calls, of course, are from current oncology patients. A majority of them are Avera patients, and their needs might be related to that symptom management or treatment related or scheduling. So maybe it's just something simple like verifying an appointment, but it also may be that they have nausea or vomiting and they want to know how to manage that. And is it something that they can manage at home, get through until the next morning when they can see their care team, or is it really something that they need to go to the ER for? All of the unknowns that come with a diagnosis, and a lot of things are new for individuals going through this and their loved ones going through this. So providing that um, peace of mind, like you said, and and really just being a reliable resource. I keep saying that because you know, in the age of Google, um, Dr. Google, we don't want people going to Google to get their information on their cancer diagnosis. And I think Avera is one of those trusted names in our community and we have oncology trained staff so that they don't have to seek um, information elsewhere. So I just encourage people to call us. You know, sometimes they won't call whether that's primary care or maybe they are a current patient and they have an oncologist. Sometimes they don't call because they don't want to bother their doctor. And I would just encourage them to call us then because we are here 24 hours a day. And if you can connect with a nurse who maybe can provide you with further reassurance and education, you might feel better about um, 
handling things in the moment or then following up with your primary care team. So never hesitate to call us, we're here for you. It's wonderful to have a way to navigate all those resources available. So, question for you gentlemen, has the current pandemic affected the way cancer patients receive care or is that, have you seen delay in diagnosis with COVID? I'll, I'll, I'll respond to that. I think um, it definitely has changed a lot about how we think about how to deliver care safely. Um, and I think that is probably a truth you know, across the board, regardless of specialty, because um, uh, it it it, um, it doesn't it doesn't matter what the specialty is, uh, the it, and 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 all those modifications will still all apply. But the thing that really is is um, important in our group is is our patients are a little bit more susceptible. Mm -hmm. um, some of the published data does suggest that particular uh, cancer patient groups in particular are, are, um, are at risk for severe COVID-19 infection if they were to acquire it. So we, we um, have been very, very cautious from the very beginning. Um, uh, now, the, the difficulty with our um, uh, care delivery is it's not elective. There's nothing about what we do that's truly elective. And, and so uh, what we were seeing is that we weren't really able to pull back and shut down in the same way as some other services were. And so um, we had to make modifications and kind of work through it. We used, a, we used and still do use a lot of telehealth. Um, a lot of um, video chat software um, uh, was used and is still in some use uh, to try to minimize uh, patients needing to come into the building physically. Um, and then a lot of safety precautions that have taken place in the building. And, and that's you know um, uh, true in Sioux Falls and I'm sure true in, in Yankton where Dr., where Dr. Peterson is. All right, anything to add, Dr. Peterson? It, I would just add that one way that uh, the COVID pandemic has affected cancer care is unfortunate in that we've seen a lot of patients delay going to the doctor, delay getting screening tests, and as a result, um, some of the patients are presenting with more advanced cancers than they could have um, presented with just because they're delaying sometimes for months and months getting proper medical attention. So I would emphasize to your viewers that if you have symptoms that are distressing, um, especially if they're possibly cancer related, please do not um, delay getting in to see your doctor or other healthcare provider because it's very sad to see people who uh, are presenting late and um, may not have as good cancer treatment outcome uh, because they were so fearful of COVID and seeking medical attention that they delayed uh, their uh, workup and thereby their diagnosis. All right. And viewer emailed this question, is there a role in good nutrition for cancer prevention? I'll, I'll take that one. All right. There's a huge role in nutrition and reduction in uh, obesity and diabetes uh, as far as cancer prevention. Uh, a very significant percentage 
of the cancers we treat um, could be uh, prevented um, if uh, there were no obesity and you know, much less diabetes than there is now. Um, and uh, not only is there a role for proper diet in cancer prevention, but there is also a role for proper diet and exercise in reducing the chance of relapse for patients who've already been diagnosed and treated with certain cancers. So it is extremely important that we uh, make progress in this country as far as reducing rates of obesity and emphasizing uh, proper nutrition and exercise because it, it's really sad to see people be diagnosed with cancers that perhaps, you know, if they'd been counseled correctly about nutrition and exercise, you know, never would have uh, developed. So, you know, that, that needs to be a huge push in this country is, you know, educating the population about the link between obesity and cancer. All right. Well, I, I'm glad you jumped on that answer. That's a very eloquent way of saying it. So, a uh, gentleman from Sioux Falls asked, uh, what's the difference between non-Hodgkin's and Hodgkin's lymphoma? I can pick up on that. So these are sort of um, uh, non-Hodgkin lymphoma, sort of a basket term, refers to um, uh, many different types of lymphoma, um, both B and T cell lymphomas, which are two different types of, of cells that these originate from. Um, and they can have a very, very broad uh, and different behavior. So if someone says that they have non-Hodgkin lymphoma, um, um, uh, Understanding what subtype that is is extremely important because treatment uh, is completely different, prognosis is completely different depending on what subtype of non-Hodgkin lymphoma a patient may have. Um, Hodgkin lymphoma uh, um, does have a few different subtypes, but by and large um, is a more uniform disease that has a specific uh, a treatment um, uh, pathway. Uh, and, and so um, basically the difference is, um, is in the, the treatment approaches, but, but non-Hodgkin lymphoma is a much larger group of, of lymphomas. Okay, and lymphoma is a cancer of Cancer of lymphocytes nodes? and okay. cancer of the lymph nodes. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it's a cancer that, you know, it's a lot different than uh, say lung cancer um, or breast cancer or others where um, uh, the treatment options may be quite a bit different depending on the pattern of spread of a lung cancer or breast cancer. Um, to a certain extent that is true with lymphomas, but, but these are these the lymph lymphocytes that are in the body that, that these uh, cancers come from their job is to go all over the body. That's what they do normally. Mm -hmm. And so by and large, these, these are whole body problems, these lymphomas, and, and that is not a, necessarily a setback. These are often very curable. Okay, good. Well, that's uh, a better answer than the medical cartoon I saw one time about two doctors, Dr. Hodgkin and then doctor with this like really long name, and they're like, <laughs> we'll just call it Hodgkin's and not Hodgkin's. Hodgkin. there you go. <laughs> so, so I'm glad I have the real answer instead of the cartoon <laughs> that's answer. Right. So, all right. Well, a caller from Elsester uh, wants to know the pros and cons of proton beam radiation therapy for prostate cancer. I'm I'll guessing... take that one. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. We'll let Dr. Peterson take that one. Uh, yes. Um, so, um, proton therapy 
has um, some, you know, some very nice advantages as far as delivering dose to targets and not delivering a lot of dose to um, uh, areas outside of the targeted tissue that the radiation therapy is intended to uh, give dose to. But um, protons um, also, um, they're, they're very um, highly energy uh, depositing within a very limited volume. And, and that's good and bad. It means it, it can um, kill certain tumors that would not be easily killed by uh, less densely uh, ionizing types of radiation, but it also creates challenges as far as um, controlling the damage to normal tissues um, right around uh, these um, targeted tissues. So if you're talking about prostate cancer, you know, the, one of the main normal tissues that you're concerned about is the rectum, since the prostate sits directly in front of the rectum. And, um, you know, basically there have been a lot of studies done, and it's never been established that for a given <clears throat> uh, level of normal tissue complications that you get a better cure rate with proton therapy. So it, it's still intensely controversial uh, whether people should travel to get proton therapy because there isn't this definitive proof. There's a lot of study still going on. Um, and the, you know, the other problem besides the fact that it hasn't been established through major scientific studies that protons are superior in treating prostate cancer is that proton therapy is extremely expensive, much more expensive than the type of radiation treatment that is available in South Dakota with high energy photons. So um, uh, there is a real question in this era when doctors are trained to be cost effective, whether until more studies are completed, we should be um, treating lots of patients with proton therapy for prostate cancer because, you know, prostate cancer is such a common cancer, you could spend a huge amount of extra money if you suddenly started sending a large percentage of your prostate cancer population for proton therapy. And in my mind, that just isn't justified because uh, you need to establish that something gives better outcomes before you can justify a much more expensive treatment. All right, very interesting. And I know a lot of these treatments for cancer end up having a lot of uh, side effects for the patients, because I know we're, we're trying to kill rapidly dividing cells, but there's cancer cells aren't the only rapidly dividing ones in the body, our hair cells and you know your blood cells. And so when you're trying to kill the, the bad guys, sometimes you end up getting some of the good guys, and then you get all those side effects that we understand with chemotherapy and radiation and, and all that problem. So I think that's um, 
unfortunately, we kind of have to use big guns to take care of these problems. Well, one thing I would, I would say is that cancer therapy has changed quite a bit, um, uh, whether it be from a radiation perspective or probably even even arguably more dramatically from a medical perspective. I think that, you know, medical oncology training uh, 15 years ago um, was was largely focused on management of, uh, of, of toxicities. Um, and that still is there, and that's still a very important part of what I do because many of the drugs that I, I, I prescribe um, do have uh, side effects. But I think the thing to understand is um, there's many more drugs now available uh, that are truly not chemotherapy. Now, it may not matter to a patient whether, whether it's called chemo or it's a targeted agent or, or immunotherapy. If it's a drug I take for cancer that has some risks to me, I'm going to call it chemo. But, but, but really, I split hairs on that because mm -hmm. we've, we've had a, a big change in how we manage patients for the better in terms of their, their, their side effect profiles. Um, and, and, uh, and many patients can now be treated with pills. Um, and immunotherapy is an absolutely amazing uh, therapy option that has really co completely changed the landscape of medical oncology in just one decade. Um, and, and I mean, I, I finished my, my medical oncology training in 2013, and there are diseases for which we maybe had a couple of drugs at that point in time, and now we have, we have many, many, many more. Um, and, and so it's just an exciting time. Um, if we have time, it'd be great to talk a little bit more about some of those specifics. Excellent. Well, we'll get to that in just a little bit. So the medical use of cannabis or marijuana for pain relief is often caught in a web of politics and legal challenge. In fact, we here in South Dakota are again being asked to decide with our votes in November. Our founder, Dr. Rick Holm, struggled with significant pain before his death in March of this year. He wanted to leave us with a message from his point of view. The video that you're about to see was recorded about three weeks before Rick died of the pancreatic cancer that he dealt with for, for over three years. He looks tough in this video. He's quite ill. I know in my heart that he wanted this video shown. He, he specifically recorded it. And although the topic of cannabis is somewhat serious and, and controversial for some people, I don't have any doubt and I feel comfortable in portraying this even though you see Rick in a very compromised state. It speaks what he feels and what he means. So I feel comfortable in putting it out. We legalize it and we make it available to adults you know, past 25 or thereabouts. And I think that uh, legalizing uh, the darn stuff, I say that as a humorous thing, uh, would be a wonderful thing. I do think that I should mention that there's some dependence, not a ton of it, but there is some dependence on it for a guy who's had abdominal pain and who struggled with uh, cancer pain. It's been very helpful for me. And um, I'm just gonna say that it's uh, a medicinal factor that's really given me relief in, from suffering. It's significant relief of abdominal pain. It relieves nausea. 
it would have a tremendous economic boon to South Dakota. It has a um, tremendous economic advantage that we would have in this state. I'm happy having a chance to bring this out in light of my cancer. So a bottom line is that uh, there are tremendous advantages to marijuana and that uh, the last thing that I would want to see is it forbidden. And I, I must say that uh, f from a position of a guy who's on his dying day that uh, it's given me great relief from pain. We need to do something to help relieve that pain. I'm honored to be asked to present to this group and I hope that um, it's something of use to you all. Right after Rick's Whipple surgery, which uh, many of our audience know is a very, very invasive surgery, he used opioids to help with the pain, and indeed they did help, but he didn't like using them at all in that he knew that it was so easy to become addicted. And in fact, when he started weaning off, it was quite difficult, even though he had only used them for a short period of time. He was very concerned about the opioid epidemic and the overuse of opioids, and so the cannabis, he felt, was another way for people to have pain relief without that addiction issue. Definitely a powerful message there. I don't know if either of you have any thoughts you want to share about uh, medical use of cannabis or CBD oil or, I mean, I know there's a lot of different options and a lot of different opinions out there on what it is and it, it's, I honestly don't feel that I have enough information to make a, a strong for or against uh, since there's not a FDA approved or, or studied. It's such a difficult, um topic only because I think that there's this taboo about it. I mean, I think patients almost some ways feel guilty about talking about that. And I, I welcome people to ask the questions um, in my clinic. Uh, it, I, I feel a, a bit like you, Dr. Cruz, in that, that I, I think that um, there's absolutely abundant anecdotal data of how to use it and how, you know, how, how to, um, uh, how it can be helpful. And, uh, and I, I think that that's pretty compelling um, uh, that, it, that it does have some clear uses. I think it's been unfortunate, <clears throat> in my opinion, that the way that the, the drug itself has been uh, classified federally has prevented, by and large, good studies to help us understand how best to use it. You know, I have patients who, who ask about it quite a bit, and they, it's usually a kind of a joking conversation. We're like, well, if there's a guy I know that lives in Colorado, you know, and I could get some of this, you know, what would you think? Is it okay? Yeah. And, and, and that's often how, how that comes up. Um, and uh, um, and I, I think that's the problem. I tell them, 
you know, I don't have a, necessarily a problem with them trying it. They first need to understand what the laws are in the state and that they could be putting themselves at risk mm -hmm. unless something changes. Uh, that's one thing that I mentioned. I don't have a, a, a categorical problem against them trying, but I also don't know how to guide them. Right. And that's an that's a area where I feel a shortcoming is I'd like to be able to guide my patients as to what's the, you know, the, what's the safe way to use it, what would be the most effective, and, and I just don't have enough information to help me to do that for them. And so I, I hopefully going forward that becomes something that becomes more available to us as physicians who are uh, ask these questions all the time. Definitely, yeah, it's, it's a really hard thing because I've had patients ask me too and, and I have to say honestly, I, I don't know and I don't have any good medical data. You know, there's no double blind placebo controlled study to tell me this is when it's beneficial, this is when it's not, this is the side effects, this is the benefits, this is the risks, you know, what do we do with that? So it is kind of hard to give good guidance when there just isn't that information there. So, all right, I've got a, a fun question here. A gentleman from Mitchell said, how did the term cancer come to describe the illness? Anyone know a little medical history or entomology of the uh, word? Yeah, so this I believe it comes from a Greek word that originates uh, as uh, 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 for the word that means crab of some sort, which is sort of like uh, a, a, a depiction of, uh, of, of what someone saw when they opened someone's body and it okay. appeared to be like uh, uh, crab-like. I believe that's uh, mostly accurate. I don't know, Dr. Peterson, do you know better than I? I think they, they discussed this in The Emperor of All Maladies, um, which is a great book. If, if you haven't read The Emperor of All Maladies, you should. But. No, I, I can't expound on that, but yes, I need to read that book also. All right, so this uh, caller was wondering if anyone in South Dakota is doing any research with fasting and cancer, either fasting alone or in combination with treatments such as chemo, radiation, or immunotherapy, uh, such as a research at Mayo Clinic doing uh, based on the fasting research of Walter Longo. I don't know of anyone in, in, in the South Dakota area that are doing uh, fasting research. Um, it's, it's, it is interesting though because there's a lot of different uh, hormonal um, uh, changes that happen regarding uh, when we eat and when we don't eat. Um, and some of those um, very hormones actually may have um, and probably do have interactions with our cancer. Um, Insulin-like growth factor would maybe be just one example. Um, and, uh, and, and so I, I, I think it's a, a, a very a good question. Um, uh, we did do a little bit of, uh, of sort of quality of life research in our own institution uh, a bit, but it was more related to uh, fasting as it relates to uh, timing of chemotherapy uh, and, and, and symptom management. Okay, so more to kind of help prevent that nausea. Yeah, we did a little bit of that, but mm -hmm. but it, it, that's not an ongoing study, and okay. uh, and and I, I don't know of anything else in the area at this point. Okay, excellent. All right, another question: How does retinoic acid work? <laughs> Boy, they're getting, <laughs> I mean, they're getting harder I, and harder. I am glad. Uh, I'm like so, in I this think end. they're talking about all trans retinoic acid or ATRA, okay. um, which is a, a drug that is absolutely essential in acute promyelocytic leukemia. So, it, kind of boiling it down, uh, um, in that particular subtype of leukemia, um, uh, uh, a, a, there's a sort of a, a blockage, if you will, in the development of uh, of normal white blood cells and they kind of get get blocked at a certain step mm -hmm. and and to kind of be as um, 
simple as I can, uh, uh, ATRA helps to th those cells to move past that blockage point. And uh, it is absolutely essential. And that uh, AML, um, pro acute promyelocytic leukemia, um, is a highly curable form of leukemia, but highly risky in the early uh, uh, phases of the treatment where patients are at a lot of risk of bleeding complications, blood clotting complications, and ATRA helps to move past that point. Okay, all right, sounds good. Well, Dr. Peterson, could you tell us a little bit when someone goes down for radiation therapy, uh, what does it look like? What does it sound like, feel? I mean, kind of explain the patient experience. I always uh, tease my um, elderly patients about their risque tattoos where they had their radiation marker tattoos and, and ask if they have any other ones, but uh, uh, generally my 80-year-old women just giggle and say, no, those are my only tattoos that my mother would allow, so. Yeah, you, usually the uh, radiation tattoos are, are not very exciting, just little dots, you know, no big hearts that say mom or, no. or, or other more artistic tattoos. Um, so basically w what happens when a patient is sent for radiation uh, therapy is uh, they meet with uh, my nurse and they meet with me and I you know, have looked over their records and any imaging studies they've had and kind of explain to them whether I think they have uh, a type of cancer or occasionally, and you know, we do treat a few non-cancerous diseases, but mostly cancers, you know, whether their cancer can benefit from radiation treatment, you know, what's the nature of that benefit? Will it improve the quality of their life or will it potentially cure them or you know what exactly are the goals of treatment with radiation therapy and then um you know talk about side effects and and possible complications and um you know then the person uh generally if they want to move forward will have a ct simulation which is a special cat scan in the radiation treatment position that allows us to figure out what the best um, beam arrangement is, uh, best energy of the different beams that we have available. And you know, there's a phase of planning that goes on behind the scenes with a highly trained medical professional called a dosimetrist. And you know, I work with the dosimetrist to figure out what the best radiation treatment plan is for that patient. And then when that plan is finalized, the patient gets a call and they come in and they go on the treatment machine, which is called a linear accelerator. And they have um, images in general taken uh, by the therapist or if it's an electron, uh, type treatment, I will go in and look exactly how the electron beam is being positioned and make sure it's lined up correctly with the area that we're treating. And, you know, after I've given the okay of either the electron beam alignment or the images that they take on the treatment machine, then I give the okay for treatment and treatment begins. And then in most cases, treatment continues on consecutive weekdays until they're done. 
Now, treatment can sometimes be a single treatment session, or sometimes it can be seven, eight weeks. It just depends on what the cancer is that we're treating, what the stage is, what the patient's condition is, you know, sometimes whether Dr. Solomon or another medical oncologist is giving chemotherapy at the same time that we're treating with radiation. You know, all, all these different factors go into determining uh, what the correct you know, number of treatments is for a given patient. And, and, and generally people tolerate treatment quite well um, and they're very closely monitored. You know, I see all my patients at least weekly uh, to find out how they're tolerating the radiation treatment. And, and, and most people do very well. Um, and I think there's a lot, of, um, a lot of people who think, oh, maybe I'm too old to have radiation treatment. But uh, we recently treated a gentleman who was 100 years old who just breezed through his treatment. And you know, research within radiation oncology has shown that a lot of elderly patients can benefit from radiation treatment. So you know, it, I think it's really important that if a patient is advised to get radiation treatment, that it, he at least or she um, meet with the radiation oncologist and find out more about the treatment and not just assume that they're too old or too sick um, to benefit from radiation treatment because um, it really can do very nice things as far as producing cures or you know, improving pain or otherwise improving quality of life in, in patients, you know, even if they're quite elderly or not in the best of health. So there's really not a too old, too sick, we're just gonna give up and, and not treat. There's, you can find some sort of treatment for everyone should they want to move forward. Is that kind of the... Not, uh, not everyone. Not I everyone. Mean, you know, there are some people who you know, are not able to um, do what we need them to do because of maybe a back injury or some other reason why they can't um, lay on the treatment table and remain still for the length of time that it takes to get a treatment. Um, you know, no one cancer treatment is right for everyone, but, um, you know, if your doctor is advising you to at least consider radiation treatment, it's, it's important to, you know, go and meet with the radiation oncologist and, and make sure that the question is answered so you, you don't deprive yourself of a potentially very useful treatment. All right, well, one last question here in our last two minutes or so. A 72-year-old female with a history of elevated platelets is wondering what the point of the medications to lower those platelets. She sees a hematologist and is currently taking a baby aspirin 
and then uh, started taking Eliquis uh, due to some atrial fibrillation. So I'll shoot that one in your direction, hematologist. Sure. Yeah, so I, I thought we were going cancer only. So this is uh, not really a cancer-related question exactly, although what this patient probably has is essential thrombocythemia, which is a type of a, a bone marrow disorder where too many platelets are produced. Uh, it increases the risk of uh, both blood clots in the legs and lungs as well as in the in the heart causing heart attacks or strokes uh, in the brain. Um, and, and, and so uh, one of the primary goals of treatment for essential thrombocythemia is in patients who are over uh, um, uh, age 60 who um, because of that have a higher risk of those kinds of blood clots. Uh, we use a drug called hydroxyurea or hydrea uh, to reduce the, the number of platelets, um, uh, which alone has been associated with a decreased risk of, of those types of blood clots. Aspirin, in addition, um, has been um, uh, used in that, those patients as well to decrease risk of clots. Usually pretty well-tolerated treatment. All right, perfect. Thank you so much. And now for the answer to tonight's Prairie Doc quiz question. A bone marrow transplant can resolve most cancers, true or false? The answer is false. A bone marrow transplant can be helpful in some, but not all forms of cancer. The winner of tonight's quiz is Connie Schroeder from Sioux Falls. Thank you, Connie, for participating, and a book will be in the mail soon. We'll be right back after this. Extra, extra, read the Prairie Doc Perspectives weekly column in your local newspaper. More than 130 newspapers in the region print the newspaper column written by the Prairie Docs, covering a variety of medical and health-related topics. Ask your local paper if they print Prairie Doc Perspectives. When you ask a physician why they became a doctor, there's often a pattern that emerges. It's usually one of three things. They have a family members who were doctors, they went through a significant health issue of their own, or they had a family member or a close friend who went through a serious health issue. In my case, it was the latter. Sadly, there have been many such experiences with people I love, but let me share you the first one that I can remember. I was five years old. She was my neighbor the only person who could overrule my mother about how long I could stay at her home playing or how many cookies I could eat when we had a tea party. She was the first grown-up who treated me like an adult. When she was admitted to the hospital on hospice, my mother tried to prepare me for what I would see, telling me that our friend no longer had hair. I told her I didn't care, I missed her, and I just wanted to see her. That memory is so strong that I can still smell that faint antiseptic in the air from the floors. The room was dimly lit with a fluorescent light over the head of the bed. My neighbor sat there in her bed, her gown hanging on her frame that was now gaunt, her beautiful hair, now just a memory, robbed by the chemotherapy. We could not stay long. Children under 12 were not technically permitted in patient rooms at that time. So I said hi and gave a shy wave, not knowing what else to do or say. But it was enough just to be there. My friend, that powerful woman, looked so small and so frail in her bed. The woman who I knew to be so full of life was now living in the shadow of death. I did not know it at that time, but that was the last time I saw her alive. 
Pancreatic cancer took her away from me just a few months after that diagnosis was given. I had so many questions, but most of them started with, why? That was the first time I had ever been in a hospital, but it would be just one of the many times throughout my life that I would be a concerned loved one visiting a sick friend or family member. The death of my neighbor started my journey to become a doctor, a journey to find answers, only to learn that there is always another patient and another question. Yet I persist. This is how I honor her memory. A big thank you to our guests, Dr. Benjamin Solomon and Dr. Michael Peterson, for volunteering their time to get us up to date on the latest in cancer treatments. If you would like more information about this program or to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, On Call with Prairie Doc, wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to get your flu shot and that hand washing, social distancing, and wearing a mask will help protect you from COVID and the flu. That does it for tonight. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Duck, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Good dental health is important to our overall well-being, but it can be difficult to maintain the proper dental practices. A healthy mouth for a healthy life. Next time, On Call with the Prairie Duck. Hello, I'm Dr. Tom Dean. I'm a member of the Board of Directors of the Healing Words Foundation, and I'd like to take a minute to ask for your help. I grew up on a farm west of Wessington Springs. After high school, I left the area and pursued medical education in New York, Seattle, and I even spent a year in England. When we completed our education, my wife, Kathy, a nurse midwife, and I returned to Wessington Springs where we have lived and practiced for more than 40 years. Just like you, we love our hometown. For many years, I've been a, an advocate for small communities and for good access to healthcare in rural communities. Prairie Doc programs play a uniquely important role in helping rural populations maintain easy access to up-to-date healthcare knowledge. Rick and Joni Holmes started this mission of providing healthcare information free of charge to all of us especially to those who have limited access to healthcare professionals. Now it's up to us to help our four Prairie Docs and many others continue the legacy. I would urge you, as Kathy and I have done, to contribute to the Healing Words Foundation. Go to prairiedoc.org and make your contribution today. Thank you. Major funding for On Call with a Prairie Doc has been provided by Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Doc on South Dakota Public Broadcasting.
Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, Fishback Financial Corporation, South Dakota Foundation for Medical Care, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Aberdeen District Medical Society, Urology Specialists, Orthopedic Institute, Physicians Care Sanford Clinic Community Service Committee, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.